As faculty, we want our classrooms to provide all of our students with a comfortable and productive learning environment. Stereotype threats, implicit biases, and microaggressions can have an adverse effect on classroom climate and on student learning. In this episode, we investigate what we can do to nurture an inclusive and productive learning environment for all of our students. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Rodman King, the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the State University of New York at Oswego. Welcome, Rodman. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Today's teas are... I'm not drinking tea. I have not joined you. <laughs> I am still drinking the one cup of coffee. I've now reduced myself down to one cup of coffee a day. I usually have tea in the evening after dinner. I like to have tea. So next time we'll have to make sure we record an evening so we can have tea. I think everything's better in the evening. <laughs> yeah. I have a state Darjeeling. And I have ginger peach black tea. Ooh. Again. Again. <laughs> Issues related to diversity and inclusion are on the minds of many faculty at our institution and many other places, too. We invited you here today to help us lay the groundwork to talk about these issues and also to help faculty think about how to have these difficult conversations in their classrooms. Many faculty indicate that they want to be more inclusive, but don't know where to start or feel inadequate or unprepared and don't know where to start. So maybe the best place to start is where should we start? Yeah, well, it's not surprising that faculty members in our community will feel unprepared or inadequate when thinking about things like inclusive pedagogy or making a classroom environment a place that is inclusive, challenging, yet safe. And the reasons that it's not surprising is that for many of us, we don't get training in these things. In our graduate programs, even for folks who've been in the professorate for a while, may not have had it as part of their faculty education or ongoing faculty training. And some of the work that I'm looking to do with members of the community is to look at some of the processes, especially new faculty orientation and ongoing sort of things, opportunities like this exactly, where we can help educate people, equip them with tools, not only for faculty success, but for the success of our community. To give credit, we're not starting from nowhere. The first thing is to realize that you actually need help or that there's a problem or there's something that you need help with. And so it's good to know that members of our faculty are there and understand that. A good starting place, and there's multiple starting places, it's not just like one place that you can start, but it's a multi-modal, multi-level kind of way that we have to dive into diversity, equity, and inclusion work with respect to faculty. Know what the resources are. CELT is a good resource. I'm more than willing to sit down and meet with departments, and I've done some of that, to meet with individual faculty to talk about everything from syllabi to things that are going on in the classroom or a topic that's upcoming that someone wants to think through how to make sure that this is a really positive educational experience for the individuals in the classroom. There are colleagues that some of them, their research is in this area. So engaging with colleagues, we have other resources. Kirwan Institute has publications and information about things like implicit bias and stereotype threat. 
It's a good resource. Self's running the reading group for Dr. Daryl Wing Sue's book. That's another great resource. Another thing I would add is a good starting place generally is to take ownership of the things over which we have the most direct control. And part of that is our own identity. As educators or professionals working in education, thinking about your intersectional identity, thinking about your life experience, sort of a self-reflection there, and thinking about what kind of perspectives or insights your identity provides you and your life experience provides you, and what kind of experiences it doesn't. What kind of blind spots or limitations that you may have because of the way your identity situates you in communities and in contexts. Think about syllabi or lesson plans for courses. Those are things that faculty have direct influence over. Hopefully, as this conversation goes on, talk some about the ways in which a faculty member or members of a faculty department can use syllabi or activities in class to help address some issues related to diversity and inclusion. Also, I'm a big fan of using some of the existing structures as a way to use faculty meetings or things like that to jumpstart conversations or keep conversations going over time. One thing that I want to make sure that I emphasize also is it's important for us to develop our empathetic capacity to develop our ability to understand other ways of experiencing and being in the world, to be fully aware of, and not just an intellectual sense, but in a full sense that our walk and the way we navigate this community is not going to be the default or universal way oftentimes, and that other people have other experiences, and those experiences are very often shaped by their identity, their robust intersectional identity. And the last thing I would maybe add to that is the word of, if not caution, but something to be mindful of, is that when we talk about identity, we're not talking about sort of granite blocks, these monoliths. Identities, even as we think about dimensions of diversity, are these sort of really dynamic and robust things that evolve over time. As a person of color who identifies as black, blackness is not one sort of thing. It is actually very, very rich. Our understandings of what it is to be a black person, especially a black person in America, are constantly evolving. And blackness as a deep and rich concept and identity links into, intersects with other identities that informs it. So my black identity is connected to and shaped by, in certain ways, other facets of my identity, being cisgendered, being heterosexual, various other sorts of things that are part of who I am. All of those things I bring into classroom settings or to other settings with me. Those things give me awareness of some issues. They give me power in certain kinds of contexts, but they also can limit my vision and understanding in other ways, too. Thanks. Well, that's a lot to start to think about. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> so it might be, oh my gosh, that's a lot. But here's the beauty of this is that people think, well, you know, I don't know what to do. Well, in some ways, we're actually living this. Diversity and inclusion is part of our day-to-day lives inside of the professional world and outside of it. So it doesn't have to be a mysterious sort of thing. There's a way to connect into it in very open and common sense ways. I really wanted to touch back on issues of power that you mentioned as you were laying the groundwork for things. When we're in the classroom, we're certainly in power, more power than students perhaps, although not all of us have the same amount of power or students don't perceive us to have the same amount of power. A young female may have a different amount of power than an older white male, for example. Can you talk a little bit about things that we need to be aware of as people who have power in that position when we're trying to deal with difficult issues or difficult conversations in the classroom? 
early in my faculty career, there was a point at which I really needed to emphasize to the members of my department that I was not just a tan version of them, that being a person of color in the classroom changed the ways that I needed to function as an instructor. For some of my students, this is the first time that a person of color would have some power to vet their work. And there was some stuff under the surface about that, and sometimes explicit things where people were not comfortable with that. As a cisgendered person, I come into a classroom setting with that privilege, and there's ways in which that allows me to navigate and do things. Whereas other people's identities may position them differently. And so one of the things that I think is important for both an individual faculty member and a department to understand is the ways in which that can play out over time in classroom settings and things like that. There are ways to be aware of the sort of larger discourse and the biases that are out in the society and the ways that that may inform what happens in a classroom, the way that students may react to an instructor the ways that students may react to other students or engage with other students. We live in a country and at a time where certain ways of being, certain ways of knowing things are privileged over other ways. And so that can actually work its way into our classroom. This is one of the reasons why it's important to think about these kinds of things. Classrooms are not sort of by default, these marketplaces of ideas. These are things that we have to actively construct. I had a course, one of the, I think the last few courses I taught before I became an administrator and transitioned away from being a faculty member, and it was a senior capstone on race and social justice. A philosophy major, so I'm in a room as the only person of color talking about racism, talking about other things like that. And so knowing that there was going to be part of that dynamic that students may not feel comfortable expressing all of their opinions to a person of color who's going to give them grades and maybe decide whether or not they graduate. I use that as an opportunity to open up the discourse and say, look, here's where we are. These are some of the barriers to us maybe having discourse here. I'm a person of color. We're going to be talking about racism. You here are white and the discourse is going to be difficult. Here's what we need to open that up. And so faculty should be, I would hope, thinking about these things both in the moment and beforehand. And that's where things like syllabus design and thinking about the ways to start off a course. You can signal to students the ways in which, as an instructor and as an educator, you'll engage with them and maybe intervene if there's bias present or other things like that. You can set the context for discourse as well, but being aware of who is going to be in the classroom, what potential identities are there, what your identity is, and then what power dynamics flow from that is going to be crucial to creating a place where things like these buzzwords, inclusive pedagogy, and all these kinds of things, and transformational education can actually occur. You mentioned syllabus a couple of times. Yeah. What can we do in our syllabus to make the course more inclusive or to help set the stage for that? Well, you can do signaling. In syllabi, and this is something that I think across the nation, a lot of institutions have encouraged or required, not just because it's legally required, but also because it is good practice for people to talk about accommodations and accessibility and have a statement like that in the syllabus. You can set community expectations in other ways. You can set terms of discourse. You can actually, as a faculty member, talk about how the class is going to be managed as a community. And then outside of statements from the syllabus, the sort of first day or first week activities, you can actually set the tone. One of the things I did in one of my classes was say, look, we're going to be dealing with some really tough issues. And we're people of a variety of life experiences and identities and things like this. One of the things that I am going to do as an educator in this room, if something happens where 
is potentially traumatizing for a member of the classroom, where the discourse can have the effect of marginalizing. If bias is coming to the fore, I'm actually going to directly confront that. I'm going to engage with that. And I'll do it in a way where I'm going to still respect people's agency and humanity and understand them, but we're going to have to call these things out and confront them. We can do those things in a way that is educative. A couple of weeks ago, when we were starting our race talk discussion, the book we're talking about is Race Talk by Daryl Winksu. Mm-hmm. The first couple of meetings, we didn't really start with that sort of discussion, but mm-hmm. you suggested actually that we should start with setting the ground rules for discussion. Mm-hmm. And we did that, and it opened up a much more active discussion. When people were reacting to things before, they were very polite in our earlier meetings, Mm -hmm. and we didn't really notice a problem, but the politeness hid a lot of things Mm -hmm. where people just wanted to avoid those discussions. And once we set the ground rules where people talked about the need to be open with these things, it really opened up the discussion quite a bit, and we saw a much more productive dialogue. So that type of priming that you talked about could be really effective, perhaps especially among faculty. Yeah, most definitely. And again, the key bit I want to pull out of what you said, you might be thinking, well, geez, it's great that this podcast happened. Why didn't we have it a few weeks ago when I was starting my class? Well, it's never too late, really. You can still set the terms of discourse. You can still have those moments in classrooms that are for classes that are currently running. It's always good practice to revisit these things over the weeks of a term. You may want to have moments where we remind people about the agreements and standards of discourse, especially as you approach really fraught topics or topics that people have a variety of feelings or opinions or can be impacted by the discourse. One of the issues that we'll be addressing and we've done past workshops on is Mm -hmm. implicit bias. Could you talk a little bit about what implicit bias is for people who haven't been exposed to it Mm -hmm. and the difference between implicit and explicit bias? Especially because you hinted towards it in your groundwork by saying blind spots. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so let's go with the clearest kind of way. There's a lot of literature on the Kerwin Institute has this, you know, like I said, Daryl Wing Sue, a lot of people, Claude Steele's written about a bunch of different things, a lot of stereotype thread, and a lot about other stuff that connected with this. It is what it sounds like. An explicit bias is something that could be a stereotype that's informing it. There's a way in which people consciously hold a view. And that could be a positive affinity, like people from Buffalo are just better people. You can have that bias towards them. A lot of times in the world, though, what we see are explicit forms of bias that hook into things like structural racism, sexism, heterosexism, and things like that. Someone saying that they do not like racial or ethnic minorities, or they do not want undocumented populations in this country. Those are explicit bias. The person holds the belief. They know they hold the belief. They're acting on an active knowledge of that belief. They're articulating it in words, action, thought, and maybe even constructing environments where that is explicit. Implicit is a bit harder. It is sort of in a subconscious way in which stereotypes or things like that become wired into us and affect our decision-making on an unconscious level. The hard part about implicit biases, whether those are positive or negative associations, is oftentimes they stand in stark contrast to our conscious beliefs. I've spent a good part of my life thinking about diversity and equity. I've taught it when I was in the classroom. I'm here as a CDIO. I'm working in this field and I still have biases that I have to combat. One of the things over time and taking some of the implicit association task tests, I realized that what I have is a skin tone bias. Now, if you were to ask me, what are your beliefs? 
what do you think about colorism? The colorism is horrible. I think it's another way in which people are oppressed and marginalized and traumatized. I do not want to be part of communities that reinforce that. I, in my own actions and decision-making, definitely want to be inclusive and open to all kinds of people. I don't want to be a person who judges people on skin tone and everything else, but it's there. And so having that bias does not make me a bad person. It's part of the human condition that we have these implicit associations. Being aware that I have those things and doing nothing to educate myself about them and nothing to try and unseat them or challenge them, that makes me accountable and perhaps blameworthy. We'll share a link to the implicit association task. And I've actually used them in my classes Mm -hmm. for the last, I think, three years now. Yeah. And they're online classes and the reactions have been interesting. Some students are very shocked by the results Mm -hmm. and it forces them to reflect on these. Others who get very strong results often tend to just believe the tests themselves are biased, so they Mm -hmm. react against it. But at least it's forcing them to consider the possibility. In general, when I did that when I was teaching, the first response is emails. Like, you know, I took this test and then I Googled something and there's the evidence that this does not work. And that's evidence that the self-concept, right? So I think of myself as this person. I have this evidence that says, I'm not that person. And so it's unsettling. For some people, as you said, they look at those results and they're like, wow, I had some idea that I might, but now this really shows me evidence of the work that I have to do. More often than not, in my experience, when people get these results, especially as you do more of the tests, people are like, wow, there's got to be something wrong with it. You want to externalize it. Something wrong with the test or there's something wrong with something else. And I'm not that person. Well, to a degree, all of us are in this common mode as human beings where we're going to have these positive and negative associations. And really, talking about power, the reason that this becomes so important is that some of us are in positions of power, whether that's in the classroom or in our communities or in departments or things like that. And when we intersect with processes and structures that we have influence over and that we shape and participate in, if we're not careful, our biases then become really blown up by those circumstances. So imagine me as a diversity and inclusion officer, not challenging my skin tone bias, and I'm going about my work. Now, that skin tone bias that I have can get pushed into processes that I'm part of, working into conversations and interactions and engagements that I have in our community, and really doing a lot of both structural and individual experiential damage. So for both the well-being of people and their experiences and for the type of community we're constructing and maintaining, we need to really focus attention on those things. So yeah, implicit bias is a really, really, really big challenge. And whether or not we want to talk about it, it exists. And it's going to be present where human beings are present. I found it really useful to share with students that it's like, I too have (laughs) implicit bias. And to tell them what some of my results were on some of the tests and some of the checks and balances I put in place for myself to help make Mm -hmm. sure that I'm not reinforcing that bias in the things that I design or Mm do. So one of the things that I share with students often is that there's a stark contrast sometimes between an emotional response for something. And that's often the implicit bias coming out that like gut judging or something that starts to happen and you catch yourself and say, wait a second, I shouldn't be doing that. I don't believe in that. That's not what I want to do. And I think that that helps students just recognize Mm -hmm. that there are things that we can do to improve how we relate to other people and how we improve the society we live in by changing Mm -hmm. ourselves or improving ourselves. Reflecting back on my comment on blind spots, 
Some of it can be a self-check, but some of it we're not always aware of our mm-hmm. blind spots. And so it's hard to ferret these things out sometimes. So as a person of a certain age, socioeconomic class, racial identity that I embrace, being cisgendered, being heterosexual, all of these things affect how I navigate the world and what I see and what I don't see. And so as I become more in tuned to myself, as I take more empathetic journeys where I'm actually trying to see the world through other lenses and experience the world as other people experience them and take their concerns on as concerns that I should share, I can become better attuned to the things that I'm not just automatically conditioned to see. Some of that, though, we may need help with, Mm -hmm. right? And so this is where really having connections in with people that you can sort of like, well, you know, I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. And whether that's planning ahead for something that you're going to do as an activity in class, or if there's something and you just want to reflect on it. And there's resources. There's, again, the same sort of resources we have are available out there for people to do that kind of reflection. We won't always catch it in the moment, especially when it deals with ourselves. We might have a conversation or have an interaction and then later be like, I'm not sure I feel good about the way that I was present and active in that context. But maybe, and you can create opportunities to go back and revisit that and make it right. That's the thing that I think is really important. It's great to get it in the moment. And I think over time, if we are vigilant in thinking about these things, practicing, doing the kind of proactive work, we'll be better in those moments. But we also should be ready to and equipped to do that sort of restorative, transformative work that can happen when we don't catch it. Even at our very best, we'll miss things. But you first have to be aware of the possibility Absolutely. so you can reflect on it and then work to do that. I think that reflects a lot of things that have bubbled up in some of our reading group discussions about mm-hmm. the guilt that you might have after a moment of realizing you didn't handle something the way that B would have liked to have handled it. And you rehearse it over and over in your head. But if you keep rehearsing it over and over your head, you're not actually making any change. You're not yeah. doing anything. Yep. So having that community to help rehearse that so that you can then reflect on it and then do something, yeah. I think is key. So thanks for that reminder. <laughs> Going back to my class example, they're very reluctant to discuss issues of race. But mm-hmm. one issue that students were much more willing to discuss, particularly female students, was the the implicit association test between gender and careers. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. women in particular were very surprised to see that here they are in college working towards a career, but they still had this sort of bias between Mm -hmm. being female and home type activities and male and careers. And that brings us perhaps to the concept of stereotype threat. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that in general. Yeah, this is a bit more complicated Claude Steele has done a lot of work. His book, Whistling to Vivaldi, is really good. He's done a lot of publications and research, I think, in the hundreds in terms of things that he's done on stereotype threat. The basic idea, and I'll try to demystify this and make it as clear as possible, the idea is that people can be in circumstances or situations where they either are concerned about or they have evidence that they actually are confirming some generalized or stereotyped characteristic about their group that they participate in. And that can be along racial or ethnic lines, gender lines, sexual orientation, various other sorts of things. Those things take a different set of skills to disrupt and to address, whether in a classroom setting or not. So what happens is, and you look at some of the research, women, when told that some sort of evaluative mechanism, be a test or something else, 
was going to have a component about gender or that the test historically hit women don't do well on it, score lower. Score lower than when those kind of statements are absent. And so one of the things to be mindful of in practice is sometimes very well-meaning folks will hook into deficit ways of approaching and engaging students. You see it a lot with first-generation students. You know you're first-generation, you may need a lot of things, and you just, it's almost like stereotype confirmation. While we want to be aware of and sensitive to and open to the needs of different populations, we have to be aware of the fact that it's not just deficits that they bring into our community. There's strength, resilience, and things like this. Gerald Wing Su has some work on this in terms of the recommendations that he has. One of the ways to approach this, instead of saying, like, here's some test or thing like this that people don't do well on, and I can think of my own faculty career, I used to say things in, like, one of my classes, like, yeah, you know, historically in this class, everybody does bad on the first paper. And guess what? You know? <laughs> You're priming them <laughs> You're priming to, them to think, think that way. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. And, and that can get into stereotypes of people not thinking that they're good writers, not having a facility with English, or those kind of stereotypes that are placed upon communities. When you say things like, I want to make sure everyone in this class is maximally successful on this paper, and that there's ways in which everyone can be successful. I'm invested in your success. I believe in your ability to complete this. Let's talk about ways to set up success. You're into a different place. Very, very subtle, the way that stereotype threat can function. And some of it, some of the literature, it has to do with sort of a Du Boisian sort of double consciousness. People are aware of the ways in which society views the affinity group that they're part of. And so they're stuck in this space negotiating their own identity on their terms and knowing that society is actively trying to put them into a box. And so you worry about confirming that stereotype and gets into the forms of self-questioning that undermine performance. Being aware that people can be experiencing that in a classroom, whether that's during an exercise, during a class activity, during a test, or as a part of a paper or something else like that, and doing those sort of positive measures can make a difference. So microaffirmations is a term that's come up. Sort of the opposite of microaggression. Exactly. Yeah. And those can be both explicit statements, but the sort of cues that can be like, yeah, yeah, I think that's really good to think about or, or things like that. It takes practice to get those things right. The line between a microaffirmation for one population and a microaggression for another population can be very, very subtle. And so I'm a big believer in preparing just like you would for other things. I'm a, what you call a weekend warrior, discount musician kind of thing. I love music, I love playing music, and I am better when I have practiced and done those things so that when I'm playing, I can be in the moment and do those kinds of things. We need to do the same sort of things and think about diversity, equity, inclusion. What are the contexts where we can provide opportunities for members of our community to actually think about, practice some of these skills so that when they're in the situation, they're optimally prepared to function. Can I ask a follow-up question sure. on that? really like the idea of the micro-affirmations. Mm-hmm. So if you're noticing, I don't know, like a trend in class, the students are struggling with X and you want to address that. Is there a way to handle that that's not like, hey, I noticed that most people in this class are having this particular problem that might make someone feel like they're in a box? Yeah. So let's look at the heart of that. There's maybe, as part of an analysis, or there's some part of the course that people are struggling with. And a way to come around that, instead of saying, like, here's the way in which everybody's kind of turfing, you know, or crashing and burning on this, say, look, there's an important aspect that I want us to think about. I want us to think about this because it's an important part of the linkage of this course. And so some of the stuff that I did in philosophy was about thinking about arguments or thinking about 
ways to closely attend to textual material, close reading, things like that. And those are skills that people don't always come to the table with. And so thinking about it in that way and saying, instead of here's a deficit you have, here's this thing that I want to make sure that we build up as a skill area. And you can be successful. This is something that you're capable of doing, and I want to help make sure that we actualize that set of skills. And so it goes more from a, here's the things that you're doing wrong and the things that you need to correct to, here's the things that I know and believe in you that are positive steps that can be taken, right? And it doesn't have to target anyone like that. Philosophers have their own technical language. It's a strange little fantastic world philosophy. But one of the things that can be a barrier is the formal ways that sometimes arguments have to be presented in philosophy. And students may struggle with that and coming at it from a point of appreciative inquiry. Here are the things that you're already doing that are great. And then building from that is a different entry point of here's the ways that you're messing up the premises in the argument and not seeing the logical entailment. What you're just discussing here is very much what Carol Dweck is suggesting with a growth mindset. So we should focus on reminding students that they're capable of doing this and working on building that sort of mindset. Yeah, I want to be careful that we don't give individuated readings of this. We want to empower individual faculty members and members of our community to address these things and think proactively about these things. But we, as a community, need to be thinking structurally. How do we create contexts where people can learn, have the skills needed to be successful, to combat things like implicit bias and stereotype threat? We can't leave it on the shoulders of individual members of the faculty or individual members in any constituency of our community. One other topic that I think was mentioned a couple of times was microaggressions. What would be some examples of microaggressions that happen in academic settings? Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of them. Some of the ones that are very common are things like micro-invalidations. There's ways in which faculty will make fun of a student name that is not very common sort of name or difficult name to pronounce. They'll nickname people, they'll do other things. Those kind of things can be invalidating for people, are ways of othering folks. There's ways that people can fall into gendered language that can affect different populations, and it's just by default. There was a move years ago, and I mean many, many years ago, and I'm kind of come back to my home discipline of philosophy. A lot of the examples across fields of philosophy of people who had either bad epistemic practice or everything else were gendered female. And so people became aware of that and are like, well, we need to stop doing that because it really can affect people in a lot of ways. Other things that happen, and a lot of times, in my experience, jokes. Whether it's a faculty member making a joke or something like that, those kind of things people retreat behind and say, well, you know, it's a joke. But the content of that joke actually marginalizes people. And there's a subtle, well, maybe it's not a subtle point. I think it's an important point. When we're talking about diversity and inclusion, when we're talking about microaggressions, these kinds of things, they're not just matters of etiquette, right? It's not like chewing with your mouth open or covering your face when you sneeze. These are deeper. The way the cumulative effect, and there's been research on this, that these things can have on individuals and the way they feel or do not feel connected to a community, it can have a really huge impact. So it's not a matter of etiquette or these kinds of things. It's about respecting the rights of individuals and respecting their right to be in the world in ways that are different than, to be in the world in ways that are different than the dominant population or myself or someone else as an individual. 
So there's those. More specifically, there have been really unfortunate incidents with faculty members trying to make a point about immigration and naturalization and having people who are not U.S. citizens stand up in class or disclose their status. Those things are really traumatizing. And some of these are with the best of intentions. Faculty may ask students to represent some part of their identity and say, please give us the female perspective or please give us the other sort of perspective, those kinds of things. There's other ways to elicit that or present that material without placing students in the position of having to speak for their race or gender or other dimension of their identity. The last one I would mention, and I think this is one that unfortunately I've over my career had many of these, is people invalidating someone's identity because of assumptions they have about that way of being. So you have students who identify and are people of color by their history and so forth who are denied that. A faculty member says, well, you're not positioned to speak on this. And specifically, this was a student who was white passing, who was a Latinx. And a professor said, you don't have the standing to speak for that. And the student has, in that circumstance, has to defend their identity. And so that's a tougher one. Is it a general good practice for people to speak only from their experience and so forth? Yes. But the assumptions we make about who has the standing to do that can feed into stereotypes and end up setting the context for microaggressions. What should faculty members do if students are making microaggressions against one another or if a student confronts a faculty member about their own microaggressions, that the faculty member is doing something but a student has confronted them? That's a microaggression. So uh, let's deal with the student to student first. Here's some of the things that are a challenge. As an educator, you will not hear everything that goes on in your class. Last academic year had an incident where very horrifically traumatizing thing happened. The instructor was unaware of it until it hit social media after the class had ended in the evening and that explodes. In those circumstances, the instructor had no knowledge, you know, the, you know, the professor, that something had happened in the class. But again, that doesn't mean that we don't address it right away. And one of the good things for this instructor is that in the syllabus were community standards, in things were clear, there were reminders of that. And so there's a natural way to enter into that discourse, both by an email message to the class and some signaling about this is what we're going to address when we get into class tomorrow, and the offer to meet with students in the interim to deal with that. The person also came to me immediately for help. So this is going on. It's nine o'clock at night and instructors getting signals that there's something going on in social media. And a person emails me right away and says, you know, I'm really going to need help with this. Can we meet in the morning? I'm like, no, let's have a conversation now and talk about a strategy now. And then let's follow it up in the morning and let's really stay close together. So we make sure that we're helping the overall community and the students in this class process and understand what happens. In immediate circumstances where you're aware, as the instructor, I think it's important to have developed the skills to call that out and say, wait a second, we need to take a pause here because there's something going on that we have to address. Sometimes it can be something that a student says as a comment. Sometimes it's part of a presentation. I had a class once where a student was making a presentation and saying, well, the blacks are, and I was like, well, let's stop right there. Okay, you have to understand that saying that the blacks as a term is a pejorative, those kinds of things. Then the next step that is crucial, whether it's coming back afterwards or something else, is unpacking what actually the microaggression is and why it can be traumatic and damaging. Even things that are sort of microaggressions that are disguised compliments, or are you a credit to your race, or you really speak so well. Those kinds of things can be disguised microaggressions. 
we have to be aware to call those out as well and unpack those. Although it seems really positive, it fits into and reinforces stereotypes about different kinds of people. So acting in the moment can be terrifying. And this is why I think really the thing about getting practice and understanding how to do that, and it's not like you're going to hit the ground running. It's something that we have to work on constantly and get help with and use the resources available to help with. Even if you address it in the moment, there is still most likely going to be the need for follow-up and continuing dialogue around that. The one piece that I think is the question that I haven't addressed yet is what if someone calls you out? And one of the first initial reactions could be defensive, like, well, wait a second, what do you mean I'm doing a microaggression or that's a microaggression? That's another moment to pause and stop and say, okay, I want to explore this and understand. Those kind of things can be tougher to parse out because you're situated internal to it. And so some of my engagement over my career with faculty is to help them like, you know, what if you have this moment? Well, to be open, right? To be open and not immediately go to default denials of responsibility. No, 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 you're, you're taking this too seriously or other kinds of things like this. You want to actually say, okay, I want to understand what I need to own here. Had a situation where an instructor, a student came up after class and said to them, I'm really hurt and traumatized by what's going on in class. You won't call on me. And I think it's because of my race. And that is a form of microaggression, ignoring someone because of their identity, something that can happen. And the professor was really struck and said, I think some of the right things in terms of approaching the other person first and saying, I'm really, 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 and not just sad in those, but I'm really sorry that you had this type of experience in this classroom. And I want to understand what I need to own about it. And I want you to have positive experiences from now on. What that person is experiencing is valid. The work of how to unpack that, what ownership the instructor needs to take is work that can happen. Part of the things that I can help faculty with is negotiate those spaces, approach those kinds of things, meeting with the faculty member, the student, things like that, those kinds of things. But I think the initial reactions to it have to be really important. Do not deny it. Do not go into defense mode. If someone feels that way, you can validate the feeling, then explore and validate the experience and explore what has to be out. Thank you. I think that's a good reminder for mm -hmm. faculty. And I think there's always a fear that something like that's going to happen. So rehearsing in your mind what you would do in a situation yeah. like that is important. One of the things that we talked about leading up to this conversation today were a lot of the terms that we've talked about today, like implicit bias, microaggressions, et cetera. But one that you had introduced me to that I wasn't familiar with was lateral animosity. Yeah. So can you explain what that is and share a little bit about that? Yeah. So at least in my ways of thinking about where people are and where communities are, there is some discourse in academia and outside academia about microaggressions and stereotype. And there's increasing because of things that have happened in the world and the way community discourse is happening, stuff about stereotype threat and things like this. Lateral animosity or lateral violence is one of those things that is a bit subtler. In essence, what happens is you have, let's say, a group of individuals. And in that group, you have individuals who are marginalized populations. And what happens is instead of pressing a case or reacting to or having, not that you want animosity in a community, but animosity towards the dominant group, you have animosity to equally or other marginalized populations. And some examples of this are for people of color, especially African-Americans who sometimes react and say, well, you know, things like marriage equality, things like LGBTQ rights. Well, you know, that's not really what civil rights is about. The same sort of things we see, the micro-invalidations, the things like that, 
can happen within communities and infinity groups and across them, right? Some unfortunate things in my career that I've had to work with populations is, in particular, some African-American students saying clearly to other students of color and international students that their needs were not legitimate, that their oppression was not real and their marginalization. And so that sort of invalidation can be really damaging. Sometimes for people, and they make this natural assumption, that if you're part of a marginalized community, that you wouldn't have a blind spot when it comes to another community. But sometimes we do. You can find it in other dimensions of diversity. You have people who are racial and ethnic minority populations talking in ways where accessibility and other forms of diversity are not things that we really should be thinking about or invalidating people's identities, things like that. Those sort of things are very, very difficult and be very, very painful. But the same sort of techniques that we use to address these sort of things need to be used in those contexts too. Internal to populations, you have some tough experiences where domestic African-American populations say to other students of African descent, whether they're African diaspora or they're African international students, that they don't qualify as, they cannot claim blackness. They cannot claim to be people of color that their needs are somehow secondary or not as pressing as those of domestic African-American populations. And I think my sort of semi-sarcastic way of saying this is like, look, we're not in an oppression Olympics where we need to battle one another to try and prove who is most oppressed. There's plenty um, of oppression there's to go around. Unfortunately, plenty <laughs> yes. of oppression to go around. And in building community, it's going to be important that we actually understand and appreciate and validate the needs of other constituencies within our community. So yeah, that is an emerging problem. It's an emerging problem in higher ed as the demographics shift. Unfortunately, what you can see is when you have a minority population that becomes large enough that they have more structural power than other marginalized groups. So what we see in sometimes marginalized communities, when they have enough either presence in terms of large enough numbers or enough structural power within the community, they reinscribe all the oppression that they've suffered and themselves and do it either internally or to other marginalized populations. And it's really, really, really very, very sad and damaging to communities. We need to have an awareness of that. This is, again, something that is a hard point of discourse and dialogue for folks. Coming to a person who's experienced marginalization and saying that you are not only the oppressed, but in certain contexts, you are the oppressor. Again, people get defensive. The, the walls go up. No, 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 no. You're misreading this. No, that's not it or whatever else. But taking ownership of that is important. One of the things that's come up in some of the reading group discussions is knowing the need to address issues like this. And I think you kind of comment about the oppression Olympics is maybe one way to go down that road. But faculty have indicated a tentativeness towards it because they're not familiar with the histories or the details to fully unpack a particular thing that's happening. What are your recommendations in those situations where you know that's not right, you know kind of what's happening, you mm -hmm. could probably identify it as maybe lateral animosity, but can't really unpack the details of what exactly is going on and why? Well, so if it's in the moment, I mean, I think you still call it out in mm -hmm. the moment, but this is where in moments like this that really creative and dynamic people kind of act the opposite. It's like, I don't know anything. I don't know anybody. There's no one who can help me. Again, we have people with expertise. So if it is about the history of African and African-American populations, we've got people who teach and do research in those areas, right? And if it's about other dimensions of identity, we have people, both professionals who work here, fellow faculty colleagues, that can help understand that history. 
one of the things over time that I had to become much more knowledgeable about very quickly as I started doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work was uh, the history of both oppression and marginalization of transgender populations. I had an understanding of some of it, but really needed a much deeper understanding of that and reached out to people who do scholarship in those areas, reached out to individuals, really looking to understand and learn. A lot of times negotiating these spaces is not something that we have to do alone. Get help, bring the help in, use the resources that are available to you to help unpack that. And so there's this way in which we can be like, well, you know, in the classroom, I'm supposed to be the expert. And it's like, yeah, in some ways you are co-explorer. Simultaneously, you have a level of expertise and knowledge that students may not have, but you should develop enough comfort to say, this is wrong and here's the mechanics of it. And what we are going to do is actually get the resources to understand why saying things like this lateral animosity or violence kind of stuff, whether it's through act or action, those things are not things that we need in our community. We've talked in very sort of human agency kind of ways, but structurally, communities can reinforce implicit biases and things like that. One of the ways that you can make someone feel welcome or unwelcome is just by the very structure of the community around you and things that people have to deal with encounter. We are in the midst of this community really needing to do work on gender-neutral bathrooms throughout our community. And it's a challenge, and it's one of those things that confronts people in ways, depending on your identity, it may be, well, yeah, we need those things. Those are good. But it's not something that on a daily basis, you navigate spaces where the very spaces themselves are telling you that you are not valued as much as others as a part of the community. So we always end our podcast by asking our guests, what are you going to do next? All of it. (laughs) (laughs) But not to be silly or whatever else. But to say this, there are multiple levels of activity that need to continue. My door is not just sort of metaphorically open. I'm available to meet with faculty wherever that people have a need to do that dialogue about how to be successful, how to implement inclusive pedagogy, to work on things. I want to do work and have started doing some work with departments on issues of diversity and inclusion. The thing that I really want to get us as a community further down the road on, we have these large institutional statements of value and mission. We have a diversity plan. There's goals in there. There's all these other types of things. I want to make sure that those larger things that are out there connect in real ways to the world that faculty live in and experience on a day-to-day basis. That's something that I really want to make sure that as a community, we're doing that. And not just for faculty, but for staff, for students, for all members of our community, that these things aren't just banner fodder. You put them on banners, they look nice, they're on websites but are part and wired into, and people can see themselves connected to these goals and priorities. Well, thanks so much, Robin, uh, for joining us today. We're so thankful to have you on campus now. Like We're glad that these conversations are happening and that the community is coming together to start addressing some of these issues. I'm thankful for you as well. This is great. I'm glad to have the opportunity for the podcast. I think the podcasts have been great thus far and covered a lot of different things. It's a valuable way of engaging our community and communities within our community. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. And we'll have you back soon. Almost definitely. I'd love to be. Thank you. Thanks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, 
please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Thank you.